Today on CityCast Philly, it's the Friday News Roundup. We're talking about what we now know about the mass shooting in King Sessing, how the city is doing with gun violence and solving these cases, and why Bucks County prosecutors accuse a Philly towing company of leading a catalytic converter theft ring. It's Friday, July 7th. I'm Trina Nuri, and here's what Philly's talking about. Joining me this week is Ellie Rushing, criminal justice reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Hey, Ellie. Hey. And Isaac Avalusia, reporter at Axios Philadelphia. Hey, Isaac. Hey, good morning, Trina. Good morning. So yesterday on the show, the team and I, we went to a dive bar called McGlinchey's, which is also a smoking bar. And, you know, there's not that many bars in Philly that, you know, allow smoking indoors because of a 2008 city regulation. But I I did my Google searches and I found out that actually today, July 7th, is National Dive Bar Day. Who knew? So I've got to ask y'all, what's your favorite dive bar in the city? God, I'm a, I'm a horrible person to ask this. I don't really like hang out a lot of bars in Philly, in the Burbs or otherwise. Like it's not a dive bar, I guess, Morgan's Pier. I like the vibe there. Like it's okay. outside. You can get a we'll nice we'll count that for today. <laughs> I got to go with the, the tried and true pen and pencil club uh, in Center City. Now tell folks what pen and pencil club is all about. Uh, it's uh, it's the oldest continuously operating uh, press club in the United States, I believe. And uh, it's located in Center City. It's a membership only club and it's mostly for journalists or people who are like kind of affiliated with the media. But uh, anyone can join. It's like 40 bucks a year and you can have exclusive events there and we have uh, all kinds of stuff going on. So. It's a lot of fun and you can smoke in there if you want, but uh, only during certain hours. Now, uh, CityCast Philly, we had our our launch party at Pen and Pencil. So that place is near and dear to us. I also like the Saint. Have you guys ever heard Saint Lazarus? The technical name is Saint Lazarus, but a lot of people call it the Saint. It's on Girard Avenue. They've got great DJs on Fridays and Saturdays, but it's a very small dance floor if you want to if you want to dance. <laughs> um, it's very close, um, and it's a cash only bar. So I, I like that place. Sounds awesome. Yeah. That's two more dive bars than I knew. (laughs) (laughs) Good. We come with the recommendations. Okay. Shifting gears into top news this week. I want to put a disclaimer for folks listening. We're going to talk about gun violence. So please be advised if this topic is triggering for you. Ellie, I originally wanted to talk to you about your story on how the city was doing with gun violence in the first half of the year. But then in Southwest Philly this week, there was a deadly mass shooting. Five people were killed and others were wounded, including children. All of this happened in the King Sessing neighborhood. Can you kind of tell us where we are with this particular story? Sure. Uh, So what we know so far is that just before 8.30 p.m. on Monday, July 3rd, police received calls of a person shooting in the street. And when they got there, it was, it was a, a a scene that police, you know, have, have kind of rarely seen in a city that has seen its 
fair share of gun violence, over, especially over the past five years. They believe this man uh, named Tim Brady Carriker, he's 40 years old, dressed in full body armor, wore a ski mask, and carried multiple guns, including an automatic rifle, and walked around King Sessing, basically across five blocks, just shooting at anyone who was outside. They don't believe that any of the victims had any specific relation to one another. The the ages of the victims range from a two-year-old boy who was sitting in the backseat of his mother's car to a 59-year-old man. Five people were killed, and their ages range from 15 to 59. And then two children ranged, the two-year-old and a 13-year-old boy. Um, and so, you know, some of the victims, you know, the first victim is a man named Joseph Wama Jr. He's 31. He heard character screaming out in the street. He lives on 56th Street between Springfield and Chester Avenue. Character's out there screaming. A neighbor told me that that he was yelling things like, uh, it's time to go to war. He goes outside and obviously, you know, didn't realize this person had a gun and and, and Carriker allegedly chased him and, and, and killed him. Carriker then basically moved down 56th Street, shooting at anyone who was outside, the, the mother driving the car, the uh, a 13-year-old boy who was walking, and then when his 15-year-old friend, Dewan Brown, rushed out to see if anyone needed help because he heard gunfire, that's when he shot Dewan um, and killed him. He moved down the block and then just looped back and uh, just in total, seven people were shot. He eventually basically just laid on the ground for police and, and let them take him into custody. So Carriker has been charged or he is in police custody. And we know that the motive seems to be random. Basically, uh, you know, Kim Brady is estranged from his family. He's a biblical extremist and he was progressively becoming more aggressive and and in a downward spiral. He basically believed that he was out there helping law enforcement. He told the police, you know, good job when they uh, arrested him. He believed that he was trying to prevent community gun violence by killing people in the community. And he believed that a god, he specifically said Yahweh, which is a Hebrew word for God, was coming to help him. Right. And it's our understanding that he regularly wore body armor, regularly carried guns, and that, you know, him being dressed in that outfit and, and going outside was not unusual. Family members told law enforcement. Wow. Now, Ellie, before this particular crime, you reported that shootings were going down in the first half of the year, right? Tell us a little bit about this particular story. Yeah, halfway through 2023, so through June, the rate of gun violence in Philadelphia fell slightly, at least a moderate decline compared to last year. But still, you know, that decline is in comparison to three of the city's most violent years in recent memory. And the rate of shootings this year still remains double what it was in 2015. But so far this year, you know, more than 900 people have been shot. And that's about a 20 percent decrease compared to the same time last year. But still, you know, with this current pace, if the homicide rate remains the same through the end of this year, this year will still be the fourth highest homicide in a single year since uh, since the 1990s. So it's still not a great year, but it does offer some 
semblance of hope. And this is all according to police data that you um, found. And and police and the Philadelphia police appear to be making more arrests in these particular cases. Yeah. So the the clearance rate, which is you know how many cases police solve in a year, is. Uh, significantly higher than it was at the end of last year. We're at 60. They have a 61% clearance rate so far this year. And last year they ended the year at 47%. So that is a good sign. I haven't looked into why or, you know, how that's happening yet. Sometimes it could be the difference just between, you know, 10 cases, but it is significant. And on non-fatal shootings, the number is still at about 24%. So there's still some progress to be made there. Okay, that does give some hope for families, for our neighbors. You know, Ellie, this most recent shooting shocked many of us. Many of our neighbors are just exhausted from gun violence. And I know this question gets asked a lot, but what are authorities doing to get these numbers down? You know, like what can we do as a city to save lives of our loved ones or, you know, what what can we do as a city to reduce or better yet stop people from shooting or being shot? It's the uh, it's the golden question that Philadelphia has been trying to answer for for right. decades. I think, you know, in the last few years, the police department has been trying to take a more geographically targeted approach uh, at the beginning of this year. They added 100 more officers to the streets in four districts across North Philadelphia specifically that saw some of the highest rates of gun violence. And those districts have seen a decrease. Again, but, you know, the whole city has seen a decrease. And, other, you know, the city has invested millions of dollars in community engagement grants um, that they're, they're trying to really take kind of a, a new and unique approach by trying to invest in the communities that are on the ground and, and, you know, most connected to people who are committing uh, acts of gun violence. The city has launched a handful of different initiatives, a group gun violence initiative where they're specifically looking at kind of like groups and gangs. And so that's all to say is that, you know, it's hard to figure out exactly what's working. Um, the city is kind of just taking an all hands on deck approach, throwing everything they can at this issue. And, you know, at least in the last two years, things have gone down, but there's still a lot of work to do. And I think a lot of uh, the solutions do have to start at the root, right? Schools, trauma, therapy. I mean, the things that Philadelphians have seen um, and witnessed in, in, in their lives, it's it's a lot of people have endured so much tragedy just in the last three years and that really weighs on them and and affects their mental health and and i believe does end up contributing to gun violence in the long term so it it has to be a multifaceted approach and um i guess we can only hope that you know what the city's doing now can help at least help somewhere down the line Janae, if i could just jump in real quick i thought one interesting twist yesterday and both of our outlets covered it was uh, Mayor Jim Kenney announced yesterday that they're, the city is bringing litigation against two of the biggest ghost gun suppliers in Philadelphia per the complaint. And that would be JSD Supply and then Polymer 80, a Nevada-based company that actually has been sued by a couple different states. A couple years ago, Los Angeles did took the same tactic because a lot of these companies try to get around state and federal laws that require people purchasing firearms to uh, undergo background checks. 
these companies take the position that, hey, we're just selling gun components, not actual firearms. We're not bound by those federal and state regulations. And so Los Angeles did what Philly's doing now, said, hey, no, 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 wait a minute. You do have to follow these regulations. We're going to sue to enforce that. And they actually got a $5 million settlement and an agreement from Polymer that said, we're going to not sell in the state unless we follow state and federal regulations and conduct background checks on people buying these gun component parts. So I think that's another tool in the kind of toolbox to try to weigh the hammer against gun violence in Philadelphia. Isaac, thank you so much for bringing that story to us. And we'll have that link in our show notes. Shifting gears a bit, Isaac, another story that caught our eye is this really interesting case up in Bucks County where prosecutors accuse 11 people who were connected to a Philly tow trucking company of running a multi-million dollar catalytic converter theft ring. Isaac, help us understand this story. First, what is a catalytic converter? (laughs) So a catalytic converter is a piece of equipment that's underneath the undercarriage of a vehicle that basically is used to kind of train out and eliminate emissions that are emitted from the engine. So these are very important components. And actually, when you cut them off, (laughs) it makes a horrible sounding noise when you have a car that no longer has a catalytic converter. So that's a telltale sign for anyone that has had their catalytic converter removed from their vehicle. It just sounds like it just sounds atrocious. And um, (laughs) it's a big, it's a big problem in Philadelphia. It's a big problem across the state and Bucks County district attorney, Matt Weintraub actually poured a lot of resources into busting up this multi-million dollar catalytic theft converter ring. And it, they've kind of worked up the layers and worked up the levels and ended up ensnaring in this Philadelphia based company, TDI towing. Like you said, they charged 11 people and authorities alleged that this was a multi-million dollar operation. They say TDI's exploits were $8.2 million per their calculations. And that's just in terms of the number of catalytic converters. They were buying about 175 a week. So they spent over a three-year period starting in 2020, about $8.2 million. We don't know exactly how much they were reselling these catalytic converters for allegedly, I should say, because we have no one's been convicted. But the the alleged kingpin of the operation was Michael Williams, the owner and operator of TDI towing there in, in, in off of the 2300 block of Wheat Chief Lane in, in Philadelphia. Now, if you read the affidavit of probable cause, they really went in depth with this. They went all out with this. It was more than two dozen law enforcement agencies that participated in this year-long investigation. Right, because the these uh, catalytic converters were being taken from cars across counties, Bucks County, Montgomery County, um, and, and in Philadelphia, right? Absolutely. It was a uh, multi-tentacled, widespread um, investigation, and they actually did a couple of things. They set up cameras outside of TDI towing to catch some of these bad actors in the act. They had more than 5,000 hours of surveillance that they captured, and they actually showed one clip where some of these so-called cutters, the thieves that are actually taking 
either the cars or the catalytic converters and, and bringing them to TDI. They actually brought a stolen vehicle and were cutting off the catalytic converter outside of TDI. And it was so hot to the touch that they actually were dropping it in a puddle of water and you could see the steam rising off the catalytic converter right outside of TDI towing. So Weintraub was saying, literally, these are hot catalytic converters, quite figuratively and literally. Right. Now, what can people do if they think that their catalytic converter was stolen? Uh, These can be kind of hard to trace. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, Weintraub was saying, you know, if contact the police, make a report, don't think that it's a lost cause if your catalytic converter gets stolen because they have a lot of investigative techniques and and strategies that maybe they can uh, line up some of these reports with either the theft ring or they have a lot of investigative technique techniques that are available to them today that can help maybe uncover some information that, that leads to uh, recovery or, or an arrest. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a headache for a lot of these people whose cars are impacted, who, who get their right. catalytic converse stolen, it can cost up to 2000 or more dollars to get it fixed. Yeah. And Isaac, I also read that this issue is also being taken up. It made its way to the state house. Tell us what lawmakers are trying to propose. Uh, there's a bill actually working its way through the house where they basically want to put more regulations on scrappers, more identify, you have to identify and put stringent uh, requirements on some of these tow places or other scrapyard fields and businesses that collect some of these metals. So it's easier to track some of these catalytic converters. And, and it's not just the wild, wild west, like it was at, uh, allegedly at TDI towing. Wow. That was Isaac Avalusia, reporter at Axios Philadelphia, and Ellie Rushing, criminal justice reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Thank you both so much for joining me this week on CityCast Philly. Thank you so much for having Thank us. Thank you. It's time for the tip of the week, where we share a life hack for living in Philly. The Department of Commerce announced the Merchants Fund, an emergency grant opportunity available for businesses in Northeast Philly that were impacted by the temporary closure of I-95. The application deadline is Wednesday, July 12th at 11.59 p.m. And the U.S. Small Business Administration will be opening a business recovery center at the Philadelphia Fire Department Engine 38 training facility today, July 7th at 11 a.m. to help answer any questions that you may have about low interest emergency loans. We'll have a link in our show notes. If you have a tip of the week, we'd love to hear from you, too. Call or text us at 215 215- Two five nine eight one seven zero. That's all for today here on CityCast Philly. Our lead producer is Laura Benchoff. Our producers are Abby Fritz and Elizabeth Comet. Our Hey Philly newsletter editor is Brittany Valentine. And our host is me, Trina Nuri. Music is by Philly's own Interminable with additional music from All the Kimonos and James Weldon. If you enjoy this week of episodes, tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Philly. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Have a great weekend and be safe, y'all. Bye.
I was going to say, Ali, if you had the answer to that, you should run for office. 